Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast. I'm Isabel Barrick, Executive Editor at FT Work and Careers, and joining me today is my colleague Michael Skopinka, FT Columnist. Hello. We're recording this series of the podcast around the theme of how to live and work better in a tech-driven age, and we'll be talking about new books that offer advice and practical steps towards that dream. It's all ahead of the launch of the 2018 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Prize this spring. In this episode, we're going a little bit off-piste, but we're talking about a book about metrics, those numerical indicators of comparative performance that seem to have taken over from human judgment in many areas of life. And joining us is Jerry Mueller, Professor of History at the Catholic University of America in Washington. He's written a short and extremely persuasive book with the giveaway title, The Tyranny of Metrics. Jerry Mueller joins us on the line from the US. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you. And I, I wanted to start off by asking how a professor of history ends up writing a book about metrics. Um, there are some clues in, in your short and excellent book about the endless data collections and rankings that educational institutions are now subject to. But what was the particular trigger for you? Well, as a historian, I've long had an interest in the history of capitalism and the history of institutions in capitalism and the history of public policy. And uh, I wrote a book quite a while ago on Adam Smith in his time and ours. So I'm well-schooled in the concept of unintended and unanticipated consequences. And at one point uh, a few years ago when I was chairing my department, I found that all of a sudden there was a barrage of requests for more and more data more and more data to be provided in standardized form. And I noted that much of this data was used by almost no one, involved a great deal of work by those who ordinarily do things like teach or mentor their colleagues or do research, so it was a diversion of time. And I looked for where this was coming from. It was coming in the immediate sense from the university's administration, but beyond that, it was coming from the commission that uh, authenticates uh, or accredits colleges and universities in the United States. And above that, it was coming from the Department of Education. And the more I traced it back, the more I saw that they in turn had gotten it from a kind of pervasive cultural meme that was reproducing itself from one organizational realm to another, from business to medicine to kindergarten to 12th grade education through the university system and so on. And so I became interested in this larger cultural pattern, and that's what the book traces. So, Jerry, tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which you think metrics are misused. So the book is not about the evils of measuring per se. There are lots of cases in which measurement is desirable. 
what I found to be troubling in so many organizations is what I call metric fixation, which is this combination of the belief that metrics, that is to say standardized measurements of performance, should replace human judgment on the grounds that what gets measured gets done, which sounds plausible when you first hear it, but turns out often not to be the case, especially when it's combined with the second element of metric fixation, which is that the notion that people respond to incentives, so you should reward them if their standardized measures are high, and you should punish them if their standardized measures don't reach some desirable target. So combination of belief in measurement together with pay for performance, or what you could call pay and punishment system. And as I examined one realm after another, I found that this led to a variety of dysfunctions. And to take one example, amongst many that perhaps would resonate with British listeners, uh, there's a famous case where the National Health Service wanted to reduce waiting times to be admitted into emergency wards. So they told the hospitals that they would punish them if they had a waiting time of more than four hours. So the hospitals responded, some of them at least, by gaming the metrics, which is what so many people in so many organizations do when you have this kind of metric fixation. So what did they do? When they had waiting times beyond four hours, they would have patients who were brought in by ambulance continue to circle around the hospital in an ambulance until they could admit them within four hours. And not, not only was that dysfunctional for those patients, but there were all the patients waiting at home who didn't have ambulances to pick them up. But meanwhile, the hospital was meeting its four-hour metric. So that's one of many examples. There are also thousands of them in business, in education, in medicine, and so on. So one of the problems with metric fixation is that it leads to gaming. But that's not the only one. We can talk about more as you like. Well, let's talk about one aspect of that gaming. Uh, you also talked in the book, while we're still on the subject of medicine, about gaming by creaming and the kind of things that happen when you measure surgeons' mortality rates. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So creaming is a typical gaming response that one finds, again, in almost every realm. And the notion is when something gets measured and rewarded, you eliminate the weaker cases so that they don't show up in the metrics. So, for example, in the United States, uh, over a decade ago, a number of states started to adopt surgical report cards. These were publicized report cards of the record of successes and failures by physicians, by name, in a number of standardized uh, operations. So how did surgeons respond? Uh, some of them responded by simply not operating on patients who had more complicated situations or more comorbidities. So the surgeon then reduced his risk of having negative outcome and hence a less favorable metric. The only person that suffered was the patient who didn't get operated on. One of the things that I found really interesting was a slightly more philosophical angle in, in that sometimes the overuse of metrics seems to diminish the humanity of an organisation. You know, it's all about taking judgment out of it, but there's something perhaps more intangible. There's more than that. That was something I thought you got across really well. Could you explain for the listeners? You're right. That's one of the most important themes of the book. And that is 
that this whole idea of metric fixation, so of standardized measurement, eliminating judgment, rewarding and punishing, all of this is based on a highly caricatured, simplified, and really distorted conception of human motivation. Because there are some jobs where people do respond only to extrinsic incentives, that is, to monetary incentives. People in finance tend to keep track of how they're doing by purely monetary incentives, and they have a tendency to think that everybody probably responds that way. And so do some economists who like to model things in terms of simple self-interest. But in fact, in many organizations, there are various elements to people's jobs. And if you just try to measure the ones that are most easily measured or the ones that are most tangible, first of all, you'll miss out on a lot of important elements of their job. For example, in almost any job that involves teamwork, there's a whole element of cooperation. There's the whole element of mentoring. There's the whole element of being on the outlook for innovation or taking initiative. Those kinds of things are not reducible to standardized measurement. And in many cases, they're simply not measurable at all. If you have a manager or a boss who is attentive to what's going on in his or her unit, then they will know such things are going on. But it's not something that you can measure. Not only that, but if you just try to orient people to fulfill certain metric targets, it means that in many cases, you will demotivate them. Because in organizations that have some degree of a idealistic mission, like in medicine or in education, uh, people are moved to do their jobs in good part by intrinsic motivation, because they think that they're, they ultimately agree with the goals of the organization. Or even in business, people are often interested in their jobs for reasons having to do with other than monetary reward. They're interested in the complexity of the job, the intellectual complexity of the job, or they're interested in the social elements of the job, and so on. So the more you try to, first of all, reduce things to what can be measured, you're going to be often missing out on a great deal of what's really important in an organization. And to the extent that you see people as kind of uh, responding in a Pavlovian way to material rewards, uh, you'll also be missing out on a good deal of human motivation and often end up demotivating your workforce. And that's one of the things that this emphasis on standardized metrics combined with pay for performance often does. It demotivates people. So, Jerry, I'm sure you're right that in most organizations, in most hospitals, in most schools and universities, most people are trying to do a good job. But there are those that aren't. There are incompetent or corrupt people. There are lazy people. If we don't have metrics, how do we hold people to account? Right. So, as I mentioned before, and I want to reiterate it because it's, it's easy to miss, I'm not saying that metrics necessarily ought to be eliminated. I'm saying that they need to be, to be used properly. They need to be complemented by judgment, judgment of uh, what's really important, of how difficult the tasks are, of how significant the things that are being measured are compared to the things that aren't being measured. So it, it is often useful to measure certain kinds of output 
for precisely the reasons that you mentioned, that there are genuinely weak performers. And measurement can also help sometimes to counteract various kinds of bias. The problem is, I think, the pendulum has swung too far. That is, there have been so many cultural forces in our society and in the business world that tend to disparage the role of judgment and tend to magnify the role of measurement. So the whole rise of IT, of of information technology, uh, leads to the belief that you have to make use of it. There's going to be more and more data, and you've got to come up with questions for that data to answer or the whole money ball phenomenon in the United States of using big data and algorithms to discover hitherto overlooked elements of experience has led people to overlook the extent to which a great deal of life in organizations is not like baseball, where there are, where there are clear outcomes uh, and clear inputs, but in many cases that's not the case. And then, of course, there's this whole managerial ideology that I discuss in the book that works on the tacit assumption that really all organizations are the same and you don't really need that much experience in depth in a particular field or in a particular organization. What you really need are these standardized managerial tools that you can move from organization to organization and those tools often end up being these standardized metrics. Let's pick up that question of big data because my colleague Tim Harford, in a really overwhelmingly complimentary review that he wrote of your book in the FT, said it could, though, have been written in the 1980s because you don't really address this question of big data or the evidence that we are seeing that sometimes this vast accumulation of data, this vast accumulation really of human experience, can be far more reliable than some of the individual biases that we show. How do you think we should deal with that? So in many ways, my book is countercultural, and the view that you've just expressed is by far the dominant view nowadays, and it has a certain element of truth to it. That is, big data can uncover patterns that are beyond the experience of even well-experienced individuals with talent and good judgment. For example, if a physician is dealing with trying to diagnose some disease, and it turns out to be a, a rare disease with which... Uh, even an experienced physician would have had minimal exposure, big data can be genuinely useful in that case. And I'm sure there are many other cases uh, in which it's useful as well. But precisely because it is useful, there's a lot of hype around it. And we tend to overestimate the degree to which such data can be applied across the board and can replace human judgment. So I think that, well, Because everybody is talking about big data and artificial intelligence and its virtues and so on, uh, there's this propensity to believe that we really don't need human judgment anymore. And that's what I think is, in that sense, I think the pendulum has gone way too far in that direction. It does occur to me that perhaps, you know, your book is timely. Do you think that it will become the fashion in an AI-driven age, perhaps to swing back to people, that humanity may become valuable again? You know, we're almost at peak big data, perhaps, and peak metrics. Do you see any hope for the future? Well, my book is intended to move things in that direction. That is to remind people of the indispensability of judgment based upon experience and based upon talent, and to remind people that 
the use of measurement and standardized measurement and data actually requires judgment in a variety of ways. First of all, judgment about what you ought to measure in the first place, which is often the most difficult question, uh, and something that experts in data, as opposed to experts in the particular field, are often ill-equipped to answer. So they're most likely to measure the things that are most easily measurable, but those may be either irrelevant or they may not be the most relevant factors. And then there's the whole question of how you use the data once you get it. That is how much weight to give it as opposed to the things that you know can't be measured. Uh, And then an even bigger question that the book raises is who's going to use the data and how? Because one of the big distinctions that the book makes is between the use of data for diagnostic purposes by practitioners as opposed to using it for reward and punishment by others. So it's the difference in uh, policing, for example, between using data to decide where squad cars ought to be deployed, what neighborhood they ought to be deployed in. That's a legitimate use of data. It's quite different if you use data on crime statistics and so on to decide which police commanders are going to get promoted. Then you have a whole whole system of reward and punishment that tends to lead to gaming in various kinds of ways. So I think that's an important distinction that people forget about. There's a difference between the question is who's going to use the data and how, and whether they're going to use the data in the interests of their own professional goals, like stopping crime or uh, healing people in medicine or educating people if you're a teacher, or whether the data is going to be used to reward and punish the practitioners, and that's when the effects are often counterproductive. I particularly like the example of Wells Fargo, a very recent one actually in your book, that if they didn't meet their targets for opening new accounts, they'd have to work extra hours without pay. Right, or... this, was, this was a kind of, instead of, <laughs> instead of rewarding performance, they were punishing what they regarded as inadequate standardized performance. And of course, many of the employees, not all of them, but many of them adopted their own system of gaming where in order to fulfill the quotas that they were given, they ended up opening debit accounts and creating false PIN numbers and so on for customers as a way of meeting the employee's quota in a way that, uh, of course, ended up heavily damaging the reputation of the company in the United States. Do you think there's any sense that companies have learned from this extraordinary case? Mm, I'm not feeling it. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) uh, If they were to pay attention to it, and pay attention to the kind of analysis that I try to provide in the book about what was the way in which structures of incentives were were misstructured, then I think they would pay attention to it, but I fear that lots of them won't. Jerry, finally, where does this end? Ah, uh, <laughs> so I'm a historian. My specialty is predicting the past. <laughs> um, but But I think the truth is that, look, what I've tried to do in the book is help to articulate in social scientific terms, but in plain English, a sense of frustration 
that I think many people feel in the organizations in which they work, in business, in the public sector, uh, and even in um, the nonprofit sector, because this kind of metric fixation has, has moved into the nonprofit and the philanthropic sector as well. I hope that by making the arguments systematic and explicit, people will pay attention and they will try to incorporate more judgment into their use of metrics. There's been a good deal of interest in the book already, although it's just been published. We'll see what effect it has. We're finishing off on an upbeat note on every podcast this series, and we're giving our life-affirming recommendations for what we've read or seen recently. Jerry, do you have anything you can share with us? One of my favorite business books is a book by Anthony Bourdain, the, the chef and restaurant owner, called Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly. came out of, in around 2000. And it's not only a great read because he's a very colorful personality describing his career in the restaurant business, but I think it's a wonderful portrait of what it's really like to run a business with all the vagaries and unexpected obstacles that don't show up on a spreadsheet. And it's also about how to make use of people of extraordinary particular talents, uh, like a bread maker, who might have personalities that are jarring and out of the ordinary and even irritating, but are invaluable if you know how to use them. So a lot of this, if this is about knowledge based on experience, kind of knowledge that you can't get out of an MBA course. And I think that's a great read for people who are interested in not just in restaurants, but in the nature of business in general. Perfect choice. Michael, what have you been reading? At the moment, I'm only halfway through, but really enjoying it. I'm reading a book called The Pigeon Tunnel, which is uh, the memoirs of John le Carre, the uh, spy novelist. And um, it actually, now that we've been talking about this, there are quite a few themes in what we've been talking about that are in this book. Because, of course, he had a, a brief period as a spy himself, as a British spy in the British Embassy in Berlin. And he's, in effect, been writing out and dining out on that for years. But what the memoir shows is how much trouble he goes to do his research. So the memoir is about the trips he made into Lebanon to meet uh, various warlords, the trips he made into the former Soviet Union to meet various sort of semi-criminals and oligarchs. And uh, I'm just impressed by how much work he actually puts into it. There's one bit of his book where he wrote in Hong Kong about a crossing on the Star Ferry between uh, Hong Kong and Kowloon. And he goes back just before the book is published and he realizes that they've built the road tunnel from Hong Kong to Kowloon. And he quickly gets on the phone to the publisher and says, look, is there time to quickly update the book? Because I've got to make a trip through the road tunnel to include this. So I think it's it's all really about uh, what Jerry's been talking about. It's about this judgment. And then there's his description, which I've always been fascinated in his books, his description of the British Secret Services. He makes them sound so much more competent than any other organization. And I think there's a certain amount of romanticization there, I imagine. But uh, still, as I say, I'm very much enjoying his reminiscences and also just so impressed by the amount of work he puts into his novels. Mine's not quite so uplifting. It's um, Misogynation by Laura Bates, the British feminist. And it's a very angry book, but actually it's very life-affirming. It seems kind of apt for our moment we're in as women. And naming the problems is a start on solving them, although, you know, her metrics are rather more subjective. Well, that's it for us this week. My thanks to Jerry Mueller in the US, to Michael Skopinka and to our producer David Blood here in London. And join us next time when we'll be talking about another new book that aims to help us to thrive in a tech-dominated age.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.